Welcome to this podcast. This is Hilary Kwiatek, Employee Communications Specialist at Lehigh University. Our guest for this episode is Brent Stringfellow. He's the Associate Vice President of Facilities and University Architect at Lehigh. Our conversation took place in December of 2019, before we had any idea that we would all be scattered and left to work remotely uh, during a global pandemic. Of course, there are still some people keeping the campus going right now, and we appreciate their efforts so much. So we thought this would be an especially meaningful episode to air now. We hope you enjoy it, stay safe, and we hope to see you soon. Brent Stringfellow is Associate Vice President of Facilities and University Architect here at Lehigh University. Welcome, Brent. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So um, one of the reasons I wanted to have you be uh, part of our first season is uh, you touch every inch of this campus with your role. And um, I think you have an interesting kind of backstory to that, how you ended up here and and doing this work. Um, But in chatting with you previously, I know that um, you didn't necessarily start life thinking you would be an architect. You're an architect by training, correct? Correct. Um, so how did you how did you develop um, into an architect? Um, so I think if you look at origin stories for other architects, there's always some dramatic moment where they looked across the skyline or at a building and were struck by the hand of God or a bolt of lightning or some sort of divine intervention and suddenly realized they were to become an architect or something. Um, And that didn't happen for me. And a lot of that had to do with I grew up in central Pennsylvania in an area that really didn't have architects. It wasn't something that people thought about. It wasn't something that was part of the daily presence. And so um, it's something that never even kind of entered my picture as I was growing up. Um, My intention in going to school was to become a lawyer. Uh, I kind of thought through law and medicine, really, and my sciences really it didn't pique my interest too much. So uh, law it was. And so I started as an undergraduate taking, uh, looking at history or poli-sci as a major, and then um, the thought being I'd get a law degree. And um, was disrupted by a, um, a colleague, well, not a colleague, classmate of mine at that point, in uh, actually a German class who was in Penn's Design of the Environment program, which was essentially a design, broad-based design, undergraduate design program. It wasn't architecture strictly. And uh, he and I would hang out and have um, lunch after class and I would start I was asking him because it seemed like a mystery to me. I was like, what is this? You know, what, what kind of stuff do you do? And uh, he, he invited me to the studios and so forth. And I suddenly was thinking, this really looks interesting to me. And I kind of got sold when I saw that they got to build models. Um, so very quickly kind of jumped into architecture from there and was fortunate to be uh, at an institution that allowed me to make the move and have some opportunities out of that. And, you know, and so one thing led to another, graduated, got a graduate degree in architecture, a professional degree, and and um, then worked for almost 20 years in private practice in a, in a a more conventional career track, which is working in various firms, mostly that specialized uh, in academic and institutional architecture. So dorms, science buildings, libraries, museums, uh, all types of buildings that sound familiar to somebody who's at a university. So um, 
so it's a little bit of luck of the draw. Um, and it wasn't something that I felt like, you know, again, that I had been given this, you know, guiding light that I wanted to go into architecture. Um, the one thing that is interesting, though, is then in retrospect, thinking about things that interested me as a child and even as kind of a young adult, some of the signs were there. And I always wonder, gosh, if I'd grown up somewhere where architecture had more of a presence, uh, there was more of a context, you know, might I have found it sooner? And, and possibly. I see. When you told your story there, I thought, oh, there was a moment of sort of blinding light. You went into the studios and you saw models and, and you true. I kind of so. had a recognition there. So maybe it wasn't, you know, looking at an IM pay building or something, but you were you were yeah. uh, drawn to it. Um, so you grew up outside of an urban environment um, and then you chose to go to university in an urban environment. You yes. went to Penn, right? Um, so clearly that had some kind of influence on you, cityscapes. What what drew you to the idea of cities? And um, Getting away from – well, first and foremost was getting out of a town of 5,000 people where everybody knew who you were, knew your mother, knew your father, knew everything about you and the kind of classic reason to get out of a small town. However, I mean that doesn't mean you couldn't go to someplace else. And uh, I think that's one of those signs that – the built environment really intrigued me. I was really interested in going to a city, not only to kind of escape, you know, the, the kind of quiet of a, of a small town, but I always loved cities. I was always amazed by how busy they were, how much stuff there was, and obviously the built environment. I probably just didn't put my finger on it at the time. And even when I started, it's interesting, when I started at Penn, the my first fall there, one of the, one of the things I recall with great fondness is I would take a period of time, usually like in the afternoon, that that zone from, you know, whenever class is in. So anywhere from like one or three o'clock till dinner time, um, I would do walks and I would just kind of do these big circles around West Philly. I'd go into Center City, just seeing and absorbing the city. Um, terrified my mother. West Philly was not, um, did not have the best reputation at that time. Uh but it was uh, it was something, you know, kind of building on observation. And again, kind of, you know, in retrospect was a tip off that the built environment was really something that was fascinating to me. I also really loved part of the reason I went to Penn was I absolutely adored their campus, um, which a lot of people didn't. They thought it was a little quirky because it's an unconventional campus. It's urban. It's not, um, you know, it's not like UVA. Uh, it's not like Princeton. It's uh, not like Lehigh um, in this kind of classic idea of what a university campus looks like. But I loved that about it, that it was this blend between the urban, uh, that it was very open to the city around it. It didn't seek to kind of wall itself off. I did a program at Columbia for a semester, and one of the things that was always striking to me was the difference in the approach to the city between the two universities, whereas Columbia is a fortress um, to the point where, you know, the main entry gates on 116th Street get shut off. And Penn was very open to the city, and that's something that um, had a tremendous impact on me and that I really f kind of fell on the side of a university should be part of its environment and be embracing it and not receding from it. That feels like foreshadowing for your job here. It does feel like that. <laughs> so yeah. after after um, a pretty lengthy amount of time um, working in firms, you ended up becoming a university architect. Um, mm -hmm. How did how did that transition happen? Um, so it was a couple of kind of quirky circumstances that worked out to my benefit. Uh, first is that my spouse, who is a faculty member at Lehigh, um, 
was got a position at Lehigh in 2013, and we had been living in New York at the time, and uh, had decided I had known of Lehigh um, from when I, you know, grew up in Pennsylvania. I said it has a great reputation. I said Lehigh Valley is kind of an interesting place. We checked it out. Seemed like a really good move. Uh, it was close enough that I could kind of keep working in New York till I figured out a next step. So. Um, we've relocated here in 2013. I continued to work in New York on a painful series of bus rides, um, which I learned to adapt to pretty well. But, uh, um, after a fair amount of time, um, that got to be tiresome and I was, I was hitting a point where I thought I need some time to figure out what my next step would be. And, uh, at that point took a job with a local firm, Breslin, um, architects in Allentown and, um, and, uh, had a nice experience there. They're a very small firm, very different from a lot of the work I had done in Boston and New York previous to being, prior to being here. Um, but it was a, it was a pleasure, uh, to, um, work locally, have a job that gave me some space to think about where my career arc was headed. And so one of the things that's interesting is architecture, um, you know, when you go through school, it really presents that you're going to have this career track that you get out of school, you're going to go work at a firm, maybe start your own firm at some point or become partner of a firm at some point. And so that's a, it's a, there's very kind of, it's almost like there's blinders on the career tracks that you might have. And it's interesting when you get out and you start to see the world that there's, there's a lot of opportunities for people with architecture degrees. And I'd hit a point that from a kind of practical point of view and a personal point of view, I didn't see that track being the one that was for me. Um, and so, you know, I was kind of in this zone of thinking about, well, what do I want my next step to be here? We're in the Lehigh Valley. Like what, you know, I might have to look at something unconventional and so forth. Um, but nothing too pressing. And at that time, um, about af- after about a little more than a year, about a year and a half of working locally, uh, the university architect position opened at Lehigh. And I debated back and forth internally about whether I wanted to apply for it. I had a lot of the um, kind of preconceptions about, oh, it's going to be, it's a bureaucracy. I'll just be rubber stamping drawings. I'll be, you know, I won't be, I won't be doing design work. I won't have, be able to have access to thinking about things like vision and, you know, how the built environment can be inspirational. You know, I'll be pushing paper. Um, but I, uh, kind of was debating it with my wife and she, uh, she said, well, I think you should apply and at least kind of talked to uh, Pat Johnson, who's the VP of Finance and Administration, was leading the search at that point. And so I submitted my application and started sitting down with Pat. And very quickly, um, she said the words that kind of intrigued me, which was, we have a lot of big plans here. We want somebody who could join and bring some passion to that, that would be engaged, that could have some of that experience. And I was sold. and so I was fortunate enough to get the position and then start um, in the spring of 2016. And you really did come at a time when um, we hadn't done too many big building projects. Um, Steps, I guess, had been the last big project. Yeah. And uh, now, as uh, as John and Pat like to say, there are cranes everywhere Yes. Um, in, in South Bethlehem here on our campus. Um, so you did come at a time when, when we needed someone who was going to be ready to take on that 
responsibility. Yes. To her credit, Pat was uh, very honest <laughs> about the situation, <laughs> so it was not a sales pitch. Sometimes I'm amazed at all the activity that's going on, and and this is, um, you know, it's maybe the most visible part of the path to prominence. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you know, what do you think is the role of of uh, facilities and 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 growing physically? Um, in the whole vision of the path to prominence, what place do you do you see it? I think it's on it's on a number of different levels. So I think uh, kind of the most the high visibility part is I would say that transformational aspect, which is you know the transforming the world around us transforms how we behave, transforms the opportunities we have, and so forth. So providing new types of building, providing buildings that can change how we inhabit the campus, make the campus more dynamic, build on the legacy that we have. I think that's really a key key aspect. And that's, I, I would say, in some ways, like, that's the the most visible and maybe the most exciting or, or the part that people think of as exciting. I think um, equally important to those, though, are that the facilities, you know, as we think about things like transformation, that they are, we take a very responsible approach. And the word stewardship is one that I hadn't thought about as much as I have actually since we've really gotten underway here, which is being sure that you still, you do make use of the things that you have here and that what you're looking at is something that is building on that legacy. You're not looking at something that's, oh, well, forget about that. We're going to start fresh. You don't, you don't really have that luxury, nor is it really responsible to take that approach. And that, that comes into play in terms of not forgetting that, like, we have other pieces of infrastructure and buildings to take care of and maintain. And I think that's been one of the things that's been exciting in the last year is we have, um, you know, we've, we have high-profile projects under construction. We have high-profile projects we've completed. Um, but we also have a couple of what are more modest projects and more modest improvements they really have a, a significant impact on campus. And I think those those are equally important and kind of plug into identifying, you know, needs as they come up and, and aren't waiting for this big dramatic solution uh, as well. Um, and that ties in actually, you know, so under my current position, I also oversee operations and maintenance. And um, so that uh, comes into play in terms of, you know, part of our role is making sure that the university runs on time, right? Um, the buildings work. Uh, people are comfortable. That um, we're not getting that the facilities aren't getting in the way of anything. That we're always trying to support, and that's a a bigger challenge with some of our older structures, obviously. Um, but I think that's again kind of equally as important is making sure that you know of the 160 buildings, you know, five have huge prominence right now. Then we have a vast number of varying levels of use and intensity that still need to be operating at uh, at a pretty high level. And so, you know, making sure that that's not forgotten about and that's taken care of and that we're kind of consistently, you know, improving those spaces and, and uh, uh, those buildings as much as possible. And by having all of that under one person or under one, you know, at person, you're able to have the full vision of the the new building projects and the older buildings that we have. So something like Chandler Ullman, Mm -hmm. seeing the potential in that, um, you really, you have 160 children (laughs) in a way. Um, And you can't say that any one of them is your favorite because you have to to love them all, right? (laughs) Yeah. And there's some that I feel like are the black sheep of the family that we know. (laughs) Um, It's interesting that you said that about um, that 
you know, you looked at Penn's campus as being eclectic but and different from Lehigh's, but in in to to my mind, Lehigh has a very eclectic campus. I think people are um they kind of uh they look at the uh at the Packer campus and sort of that main core as our kind of identity, but we have decades and decades of architecture. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about all the different styles and, and how you can make a cohesive campus out of so multiple campuses out of that. We have uh we have a pretty wide variety of architectural styles. And um, I've often talked about, I'll refer to it when I've given talks about the campus, as we have in some ways a museum of American architecture. And I'll point out some better than others, uh, example-wise. Um, and so if you go through and you look at the buildings, I mean, people, uh, you look at, if you're in the UC Lawn and you, you know, spin around in 360 degrees, you're surrounded by this array of really beautiful historic buildings. But they don't all match. They're not a singular, singular style. So you're not in a situation like you would be like at UVA um, uh, where, or even Duke where you have a singular style that kind of dominates a, a core. Um, sometimes that's an advantage. Sometimes it's not. I believe it's an advantage because it gives us freedom to kind of evolve and build buildings that are of our time. We're not necessarily locked into a certain identity. Um, so that being said, I mean, you go through and you see we have examples of we have different types of Gothic architecture. We have Victorian Gothic, which tends to be a bit more eclectic, polychromatic. We have Gothic Revival, which tends to be much more traditional, much more um, technically proficient. So think of uh, Alumni Hall versus the UC. They might appear similar, but if you look at them, they're very different Um in terms of the UC, is a much more eclectic building, a, a bit more vibrant, more indicative of the time it was built in the uh, uh, 1860s and 1870s, where you started to see this uh, much more kind of um, evocative way of using Gothic uh, and interpretive way of using Gothic. By the time alumni was built, actually in the 20s, people would return to a much more kind of academic view of Gothic. Um, so you have buildings like that. You have Williams Hall, which is got which is Greek Revival. It's totally on a totally different end of the spectrum. You have a building like Chandler Allman, which is actually more of a Romanesque uh, revival type building. Um, as is Taylor Jim. Uh, you have uh, the church, which is Gothic Revival. Um, and then, as you start to kind of get beyond that inner ring, you start to get to you start to get to other quirks, and you end up with. Um, you know, a building like Grace, which is uh, kind of a mishmash of different styles. You have the different dorm buildings, which you have something like Taylor, which is formally looks like a historic building, but at its time was one of the most advanced buildings. It's a purely poured-in-place concrete building, one of the earliest ones ever done. Um, you have uh, then the evolution with Drinker, Javot, and Richards, which were built only 20 years before the Centennials were built, which is kind of interesting. You would think they were closer in age to the UC. They're actually, you know, decades away from the uh, Centennials. 1930s, is that right? 1940s. 1940s. Yeah, okay, so even post, later than They I were thought. built post-war for the basically the post-war um, The um, GI bump. Bill bump. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's exactly. very interesting. Yeah, prior to the war, it was Taylor and M&M, I believe, were the only two large dorms. And then you, you had the SMAT. At that point, there were houses, uh, fraternities up the hill at that point. Um, 
And then you get to the era I call bureaucratic modernism, right. which is, uh, you know, so Whitaker, Sinclair, uh, some of these buildings that are relatively forgettable, uh, but of are of their time. Um, we do have some great examples of modern architecture where we sit right now. Mountaintop is really uh, some pretty stunning examples of mid-century modern, um, which have great potential, as we've seen with Building C, to be reactivated. Uh, and then we have some buildings that um, are uh, great examples of postmodernism. So the Rausch Business Center is an example of that, kind of, even though it's a more modern building, kind of hearkening back to uh, an earlier age in terms of how it's detailed. Uh, and then you get to buildings like Steps in Farrington Square, which um, really nod in the direction of a historic background. So Steps, I think if you look at how it has the stone wall and then using the brick and Farrington really starting to try to knit the campus more with the context of Southside Bethlehem um, are trying to be contextual, but at the same time also being forward-looking. So so you have this array of buildings. And um, I think one of the things that helps to knit that all together really is the landscape. And uh, you see it naturally with the with the, the UC lawn in terms of that kind of hub and spoke organization that that develops. And part of what we're trying to do with a lot of the planning with Path to Prominence buildings, as you're going to start to see it, is um, pulling the landscape together to help make all these projects more cohesive and connected so that you it doesn't look like we have buildings just dropped everywhere. And you can, you can start to see that evolution happen as some of these projects come online about how we're trying to tie them together. You've talked a lot about, um, in presentations I've seen, uh, using the, um, the new uh, residential buildings that you're building, um, the different houses, mm -hmm. uh, to actually uh, change elevations. So you can move within elevations because, of course, one of the things that's truly unique about Lehigh's campus is that we're built on a mountain um and uh and so that that's interesting right if you exit out the back of the uc and hit the new what's going to happen there right so the shoots and ladders as i call it so um what we're looking at doing is if you look at the campus travel in the east west directions is well relatively flat so in comparison to the moving in the north south direction which is where you hit the steep inclines so with having the buildings kind of step up the hill, uh, that allows us, as we modernize old buildings, as we build new buildings and using elevators and open access, you can start to develop an accessible pathway that people can make their way up the hill using the buildings themselves kind of as elevators and then building um, appropriate pathways between those so that you are able to make your way up the hill in a much, in a, in a fairly um, reasonable fashion. With the new residential houses, in particular Phase 2 and the UC, what we're doing is taking that even a step further and developing, first of all, the new UC will have this opening courtyard that faces south uh, that will be kind of gracious and inviting. And that will actually spill out into something we're calling the Great Lawn, which is a long, again, relatively flat, not fully flat, that's difficult to do, but relatively flat um, field that provides an area for recreation but also provides a reasonable way to start to move up towards the residential part of campus. And then again, using the buildings, the houses that are part of phase two, and then the houses in phase one, um, those will have access to different elevators that will allow people to kind of move up, migrate up the hill um, in, in that respect. 
So those are examples of where we're, we're, you know, we can't overcome the landscape, but how do we design and build within it in a way that acknowledges that and works with the landscape? I'm still voting for the funicular. I'm not giving up on the, the funicular idea, though. <laughs> You've been to European a, cities and you're, places where— You're welcome where, to, right? uh, to uh, make a donation, and uh, we will start working on citing that as soon as, uh, as, soon as we get your check. <laughs> so your job seems pretty cool to me, but I'm sure there are parts of it that are, you know, a little more drudgery than, than others. But mm-hmm. what do you think is sort of the, the spark, your favorite part of what you do? Um— there's a lot of favorite parts. Um, I, I mean, obviously, I love being involved and being able to have impact in terms of, you know, working with our design teams, working with our leadership team here and kind of say, okay, how are we going to, what's the built interpretation of what we're trying to do? And that's ultimately what every piece of architecture is about, right? Which is taking, you have the program piece, but but how do you, you want to give it that spark that makes it more than just the, you know, the sum of its parts. That's obviously something that's really rewarding. And to see buildings going up, I mean, it's to come in every day and just see multiple buildings going up is really exhilarating. Um, that being said, I also think it's uh, it's things that maybe appear to be smaller at times, but it's doing the little improvements. I think it's working with the, the team. It's knowing, it's knowing that the campus is a point of pride with people at Lehigh, with alumni. Um, and I think even people that work here, that there's a certain amount of, this is a beautiful campus. And so um, taking that that role as steward of the campus as well, and, and just the pride of saying, you know, uh, you know, this is something we take care of. Like part of my, the main part of my job is making sure that this functions and looks good, you know. And, uh, you know, and so that has different ways that it can um, come out. It's... You know, it's walking through and overhearing somebody who's touring campus and having them just say, this is a ama- this is a stunning, this is a stunning place. You know, that type of thing where you're, you know, there's a, there's a lot of pride that can come with that. Um, and I, you know, honestly, outside of all the space and so forth, it's like, I love working here in terms of the people. I actually, I've said this uh, since I started working here is, um, we have a great array of personalities and personality quirks and so forth, but I genuinely find it to be a really great place to be working with people and think that it's really, um, I think, uh, it, what's the word I'm looking for? I think it's invigorating to be someplace where I think your work is appreciated. You get to work with people who's work you appreciate as well and understanding that, you know, all these projects I'm talking about being associated with, it's like, those aren't, it's not just me. That's working with a huge number of people who are kind of invested in these. And that's really exciting. And I think knowing that, you know, you're you're someplace where you're, you know, you're not doing this on your own and that everybody's kind of on the same ship, you know, some days feeling like you want to paddle a little more than others, but... (laughs) Um, in general, I, I think that that's uh, it's a nice part about being here. And, you know, going back to the whole idea of the opened or closed campus, um, it seems that um, we definitely are on a track towards openness. Um, tell us a little bit about the health science and technology building mm-hmm. and uh, how that opens us up more. 
yep. to the community. So if you look at the history of Lehigh, uh, historically, Packer Avenue really was the northern border of campus. And the historic core kind of demonstrates this, right? I mean, all the buildings in that hub and spoke, they all pretty much oriented towards facing each other. Um you know, even the buildings on Packer Avenue, it's generally the backsides of the buildings, with the exception of the church, uh, which really has to do more with its orientation. But if you look at Packard Labs, if you look at Christmas Saucon, um, Fritz Labs, um, and then we have our boiler houses, right? So these are these are the things that face the community historically. Um, we didn't do much to improve it when we uh, were, and it's still unclear to me from the history in terms of who initiated, whether it was the city or Lehigh or it might have been Bethlehem Steel at that point, the urban renewal of the blocks north of um, uh, of Packer. So basically that zone from um, Broadhead to Webster and then north to uh, essentially uh, Morton, Morton Street. And when that initially took place, what happened is the city, the, the, the campus expanded into the city, but it carved out a moat. Um, so it wasn't connecting with the city. It was just expanding into the city. So you had uh, a couple of buildings, McGinnis, the library initially, Whitaker, Sinclair, Mud followed. Um, but they were all surrounded by parking. There was parking that, it, you know, if effectively acted like this moat. And parking, um, you know, I think people think, well, if it's a parking lot, it's open, right? It's But a parking lot is not, it's not inviting. It tends to be possessed by somebody. If it's not your territory, it's not something that's going to encourage people to come across or anything like that. So it really did act to kind of effectively kind of keep Lehigh segregated from the city. Um, that started to change really in the 90s. Um, and I think it was under uh, Greg Farrington, from what I understand, that the, the movement really started to be that Lehigh had to engage more with the city, with Southside in particular. And so it's part of the reason Farrington Square, which was originally Campus Square, was uh, ultimately named for him. And that was really the first project that I think started to actively say we need to be more engaged with the city. And I think parts of it are successful with that, parts of it uh, not quite as successful. Um, but I think it at least demonstrated the fact that Lehigh was ready to be directly um, kind of involved with the city. And um, the work we're doing now when you get to HST, which is on Morton, so just down from Farrington Square, is trying to crank that up a bit more. And first of all, it's an academic building, which is a little different than a residential building in terms of the types of activity, the messaging that that sends that we're putting our most high profile, our most advanced research building right on the border of the city. And we're not turning our back to the city. Uh, in fact, the main entries, if you walk, when the building's done and you walk around it, you'll see the main entries appear to be the ones that really open onto the, onto the south side. And that was an important messaging in terms of, um, you know, that Lehigh, even though we're putting a building on this parking lot that was previously open, that building is actually helping to knit the community and the campus together more effectively. And having those open doors was also important if you look at the, miss met the mission of the College of Health in terms of its focus on population health um, and community health that is suddenly kind of saying we're, we're embracing the community. So um, it is the first building that has its, the first academic building that really opens up to the community um, quite physically. So uh, I think that's a, an exciting step. And this has been, uh, you know, we have other efforts throughout the city. So 
where you reside, the Flatiron Building, the third new project, uh, the conversion of Brinker Lofts, the work we did at Southside Commons. So these are all examples of Lehigh kind of really integrating with the city, not taking over land and kind of pushing this, you know, pushing the city back, but saying, okay, we're going to we're going to kind of co-develop with the city. And um, I think everybody has been pretty support. And, you know, there's always issues. It's um, uh, we have to be mindful of the non-university population. We have to be mindful that we, you know, we're still, a, there's a great quote I heard, which is, um, and I'm trying to get the wording right, but it was something interesting. It's like um, being in a, a university, a university town is uh, the situation of a university town is not unlike that of sleeping next to an elephant, which is even if the elephant is nice, it could still roll over in its sleep and accidentally crush you. And um, quote was much more. There's much, it's much catchier than that, but <laughs> it, it, it's basically the idea is like a university is this big is this big thing that even with it, it could unintentionally damage things, even if it thinks it's doing the right thing. So I, I always try to keep that quote in mind. Um, and I'm going to look it up so that I get it right the next time. But anyway. I think I think that was I think you said it right. I think I think we all got it. Um, and it, it's it's true. And of course, many 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 of our employees live here. Mm-hmm. Right, I live here. Um, so my work and my home, you know, are connected in this way that. Um, and we encourage employees to live on the south side through mm-hmm. some incentive programs we have and things like that. So we're we are trying to. Um, be, you know, a world-class university in a small city that's a community and yep. and that has its own challenges, especially on the south side um, in terms of poverty and, and things like that. So um, it's an interesting balance for you to, to undertake. And it seems like it's much more at the forefront of the thinking of the leadership of the university now um, than it was maybe 50 years ago. Definitely. Definitely. So... Um, this has been a great chat, and I really appreciate your time. Um, what do you like to do in your free time? I'm just curious. Um, ironically, sometimes I like to do work around the house, so it's like the busman's holiday. Like, I'm going to go home and fix stuff after I uh, I joke with my wife. I said I don't think the appeal of owning an old house has lost a bit of its luster in my current position. What um, kind of house do you have? What, we what have period? A, just a 1925 brick four square kind of typical workers' housing. We live in Emmaus, and you know it's uh, it's had its alterations done over the years, which have not been that great. And uh, you know, so it's kind of figuring out when do we when do we deal with that. And it's got the drafty windows. It's got old electrical systems. It's got a lot of work that was not done by inspected processes and so forth. So, um, but it's it's fun. It's fun to kind of kick around with that type of stuff. Um, <clears throat> But then I also love hanging out with my family, uh, definitely like doing stuff in the outdoors, uh, travel, things of that nature. Um, travel is probably, you know, I wish I could do more of it, um, but I find that probably the most relaxing thing to be doing, uh, with, you know, in terms of getting away and, and being in different places. And and again, it kind of gets back to architecture a little bit. It's like I'm still kind of drawn to traveling to you know, if it was like, is, do you have a choice of a beach, a mountain, or a city? I'd probably end up in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, although I do like being at the beach and the mountains too. But but it depends what type of relaxation I'm looking for. Right. So. I was going to say, um, folks should follow you on Instagram. What's your Instagram? It's uh, Lehigh Architect. Right. All so, one word? I believe it is. Okay. 
um, folk, look for Lehigh Architect on Instagram and you'll see um, Brent's travels, uh, you know, different cities you go to. Um, it almost feels like you're there to research for your job, but at mm-hmm. the same time, it's a, it's a, it's a vacation. But um, they'll see your, your eye, your, your architect's eye through your, your camera lens. Really recommend that to everybody who's listening. Um, Brent, thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate your time, and uh, we'll look forward to everything that's coming next. Great. Great. Thank you. This podcast is a production of Lehigh University Human Resources. Our producer is Emma Dillon. The podcast is recorded in Lehigh's audio recording studio in Mountaintop Building C. Special thanks to Jarrett Brown of Library and Technology Services for technical assistance. I'm Hilary Kwiatek. Join us next time to see who we spot.